0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations about difficult subjects. Tonight is part of an ongoing series about families and mental illness. I'll be speaking with Alicia Barnes about her experience of having a brother with schizophrenia. Alicia Barnes is the daughter of a mother with bipolar disorder, and also the sister of a man with schizophrenia. She's a native of Maine, and she is a volunteer for the national organization Bring Change to Mind, a group that works to end the stigma and discrimination of mental illness. Welcome to Safe Space, Alicia. Thank you. So I want to start, we're going to focus tonight about Alicia's brother, and I want to start by hearing a little bit about Josh. Tell me a little bit about who Josh was before he got ill.
1: Um. Basically, uh, he was three years younger than me, so he was my little baby brother. I took care of him most of the time. And uh, we shared a bedroom until he was probably about seven, and I just remember he'd come in from the field, and I'd go into my bedroom, and I'd be like, what is that? And opened my closet door and found a bucket full of polywogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, he, he brought the wildlife into our house. Uh, most of the time while we were growing up, frogs, mice, fish that kind of stuff. And when he was around 14, he picked up the guitar and decided to teach himself how to play it all by ear. And he took that thing everywhere he went. For 16th birthday, my parents got him a Gibson SG, a rather expensive guitar. And that's pretty much all he did in his spare time was play the guitar. That was really his passion in life, was music. He wrote and played in a couple different bands in Maine and then Boston. So that was something that brought him a lot of joy. So tell me a little bit about
0: how you first learned that he was beginning to suffer from an illness.
1: When Josh was 19, he moved down to Miami, um, which is where I was going to school at the time, and I had gotten an apartment and asked him if he wanted to move down there. So I got an extra bedroom. He and his girlfriend came down, and within a few months, um, she told me he was having really bad nightmares, like so bad he didn't want to sleep. So that was probably just making them worse because he was sleep-deprived. And one day we were walking home from the mall, which was across the highway from our house, from our apartment, and um, he just, he said to me, he goes, Do you ever hear voices? And then before I could even answer, he said, Actually, it's more like a growl, and the pit of my stomach sank because I had taken a few psychology classes just to learn more about my own family and I knew what that meant Um, you know and I think the first thought that came into my head was why my baby brother why not me you know we had quite a few conversations he was working part-time at the time and thought people were talking about him all the time constantly you know and I'm like You are talking in Spanish, you can't prove if they're talking about you. Just ask, you know, I'm sure they're not talking about you, you know. And so, I mean, that was one of the symptoms. Um, So he started to get paranoid. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he also started believing in God when we weren't brought up religious at all. You know, basically, you know, his decisions were made on, is this sinful? Is it not sinful? And, you know, then I finally convinced him to get help because he did blame himself for a while. He blamed himself? How do you mean? He blamed himself because he had experimented with drugs. So he thought he brought it on himself. And by then I had already taken enough psychology classes that I knew that it was just a trigger. You know, it would have happened eventually, but he probably tr- he triggered it early. So I convinced him to get help. Basically, he ended up moving back. Maine and then back to Boston um, and saw a psychiatrist once a month, was prescribed, you know, four different medications. Because it was some years,
0: right, that he was on medication and And relatively stable, had a serious girlfriend. Was he able to hold a job?
1: Well, he was on Social Security Disability, so, you know, he'd get paid minimally to play You know, know, maybe 20 bucks a night, you know, and they'd have to split it between the band to play a show in Boston. So he, uh, you know, worked part time, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing.
0: So I want to back up a little because you said, so I managed to convince him to get help. Mm -hmm. So that's no small statement you just made there. And especially you said if he felt it was his fault, if he felt he brought it on himself. I mean, often we don't want to go see a doctor. When we feel like we've brought something on ourselves, we feel ashamed or, you know, we feel worried that they're going to be really blaming or critical of us. How did you help him get help? Because that's a big
1: step right there for so many Um, families. Well, I think because I had taken psychology courses, and I mean, I wasn't just saying that, I believed it, you know, and I... I didn't blame him, you know. I knew it wasn't his fault that he had schizophrenia, you know. It wasn't his choice. And that, that was probably in, that was in 1995. And even then, you know, there were some genetic models, but, you know, even now they still don't know if it's genetic, environmental. But to me, it was genetic because we had grown up in the same environment and I didn't have it. So the only thing that explained me not getting it logically was that it was genetic and he had that gene and I didn't because we shared the same environment. So,
0: well, as I'm hearing you, it sounds to me almost as if he could really feel that you were not blaming him at all, and that you were very accepting, and that so he trusted you at
1: some level. Right, definitely.
0: And so what was it like for him? You said he went to Massachusetts, he went, you know, he saw a psychiatrist once a month. Sounds like he never had talk therapy. No, he never did. And he's on four medicines, so what we know about antipsychotic medications is they're very challenging to take, a lot of side Mm -hmm. effects. Mm -hmm. Did he tell you about what it was like to take all that medicine?
1: Um He told me when he took his medication, he didn't want to do anything but lay on the couch. I knew that his medication was, you know, not helping him write music. And that was his passion. That was his purpose in life, was to create music. Because of that, he stopped taking his medication. Mm. But then he couldn't cope with his symptoms. So he began to self-medicate. Meaning what? Predominantly um, with cocaine, He didn't like the marijuana because it made him even more paranoid. And so he would do cocaine. So I didn't know he wasn't taking his medication until it was too late. I was in San Diego in a Navy school, and his girlfriend at the time called me. And they had been together for seven years. And she called me, and she said, have you heard from Josh? And I said, no. What's wrong? I thought he had disappeared or, you know, she didn't know where he was. Um, I'd be worried about him. Well, then she told me she was in the hospital and proceeded to tell me of what had happened the night before. My brother had attacked her, and he had never had a violent outburst in his life. So I knew that there was something, you know, that he justified it somehow. And I'm not saying that mental illness is an excuse. Um, it It's not, but he wasn't himself when it happened. That was not my brother. That was my brother with a mental illness, having no control over himself.
0: And I understand that actually the context was even more complicated than that. Right. He was actually in a state of some real grief.
1: Right. His girlfriend, and he, even though they had been together for a long time, was from a very Catholic family, and she had become pregnant. And approximately a week before my brother attacked her, he had gone with her, and she had had an abortion. Um, My brother said, you know, it was her choice. And when he told me what had happened, he was crying. And he said, that was probably the only chance I'll ever have to have a kid. And granted, that's probably true. But, you know, my brother's not here now. So that child wouldn't have a father. So when he told me that, and he told me what he was planning on doing that night, he said he was planning on killing her and then killing himself. The way I saw it, knowing... That he was having these delusions that if he sinned, he was going straight to hell. Basically, um, the way I saw it was that he believed he was a murderer.
0: I see. So part of it was the grief that he might never have a child, but this, but another big part of it was that he really believed he was going to hell and that he had he was a murderer. Right. I see, and that she was too, by implication. Right. And that's why he wanted to kill her. And that's himself?
1: that's what I believe. Oh. I mean, he. I asked him. I said, what? was, what were you planning to do that night? And he said he was planning to kill her and then kill himself. Then a couple, you know, it was almost two months later that I found out what had happened exactly a week before that night.
0: I see. You didn't know
1: about the right. yet. Right. So, but that to me was an explanation based on his symptoms. And also, I, I told him, I said, you know, his girlfriend thought that he was doing cocaine that night and was coming off of it. And that's why he became violent. But he told me he wasn't taking his medication. I see. And she didn't know that.
0: I see. And so I understand that there you are, terrified for his life, terrified that he's about to hurt somebody. He's already hurt her a little bit. And that you ultimately made a decision to call the police. Yes. And get him help. Yes. And this is a situation that so many family members are in, where they feel like they are sort of caught in that, for the safety of the person they love, they end up having to almost feel like betray them, and um, I'm guessing you've talked to other people who've had similar experiences, but how do you how do you look back on that decision now to to call and essentially get the police involved, even though you knew that he would not be grateful to you right
1: I don't have any regrets because I talked to him before I turned to men and He said he was not going to jail. And I I knew when he said that, that he was going to spend the rest of his life running if he had to, you know, and that meant I would never hear from him. Or what my worst fear was, was that this was later on that same day that his girlfriend had called me because he took the bus from Boston, Maine, uh, that same day. Uh, My worst fear was that, you know, he'd wake up. And realize what a terrible thing he had done and just kill himself and just end it. Because my brother was so compassionate, so affectionate. Like, I knew there had to be an explanation. And I I mean, I'm pretty sure that his delusions were the explanation and the lack of taking meds. But, you know, and I've tried to reconcile, well, if you have mental illness, as long as you continue taking your meds. But there's so many side effects that aren't completely understood. Um, you know, my, my brother lost his purpose when he took his meds. He had no purpose. He, he wanted to play music, but he, like he told me, you know, he didn't want to do anything but lay on the couch. So what I'm hearing you say is that even though it resulted in tragedy, you, you don't judge him for it. Not at all. And I don't judge anybody else for that. Same reason.
0: Because, in fact, the reasons to not take them are quite compelling. Yes. So I know that what happened ultimately is that he did serve time and that when he was out, ultimately he had a, what sounds like it was an accidental overdose as a, as a naive heroin user. Yes. And that he passed away,
1: how many years ago is it? It was February of 2004. We don't have to do this in nine years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's too complicated. It seems like it was not that long ago. Yes.
0: So one of the things that I was so touched by when we first spoke, Alicia, is that, you know, your first response back in the beginning when he told you, I hear voices, I hear this growl, was, why my baby brother? You know, why not me? And. I just hear in that your, your love for him, your protective instinct for him. And I know you've become really active now in this organization working to end discrimination. I wonder if you could say a little bit about your decision to really devote
1: so much of your life to doing this work. Right. So when I found out he had died, I hadn't completed my bachelor's degree. I knew I was going to, but I was unsure what major because I'd had about four majors. And when that happened, I knew that I was going to get my degree in psychology. Before, when I took psychology classes, it was to learn more about my own family. Then when I made that decision to go back to school for my psychology degree and finish my degree, it was to help other pe- other people and their family members. The way I kind of see it is if I can help one person not have to go through what I went through, my brother's left a legacy. So... And, I mean, I, I know the, the work that I've done will be more impactful than that, but so after I finished my degree, I relocated back to Maine from Indiana and had heard about Bring Change to mine to my research center. An email had gone around, um, and basically the email went around with the video link for the, the public service announcement that they did. Um, Why
0: don't you describe that briefly?
1: So the... Public service announcement was in, filmed in Grand Central Station, and it starts out with people coming in, and they're wearing T-shirts that say depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they're walking with somebody else. And they're walking, and one says, you know, the person with post-traumatic stress disorder, the person walking with them, their shirt, her shirt says battle buddies. And then Glenn Close is walking with her sister Jessie, and hers says depression. Depression or bipolar disorder, um, but basically, and Glenn
0: shirt says sister. Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: So, and by the end of the PSA, the shirts kind of dissipate, and they're all just wearing average-looking color shirts because one in six people is affect it has mental illness, and so really that what that means is everybody everybody knows somebody with mental illness, whether they know it or not. We're all affected by it, and. So this PSA, the foundation was started by Glenn Close and the Fountain House in New York City, um, which is a rehabilitation home for people with mental illness and uh, quite a few other organizations. Um, But what happened was Glenn's sister, Jessie was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and her nephew, Kaylin, Jesse's son, was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. And Jesse called Glenn and actually asked for help with her son and said, there's nobody talking about this. The stigma is so bad, it's almost as bad as the illness. You know, people aren't getting help. They're not talking to their own family members about their illness because they're afraid they're going to be judged by their own family members. That's one of the reasons why I'm so involved, because my brother, and I will never judge anybody, doesn't matter to me who they are, you know, or what they're going through. I can't even imagine the, the other thing. My brother didn't talk a lot about his illness to his friends. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, the central conversation. It was his music and what they were working on, where they were playing next. But he talked to me a lot. And I just imagined him, you know, being at his band rehearsals and having these thoughts and feeling like he couldn't share anything, that he had to hide it. I mean, he essentially hid his diagnosis, and I, I'm pretty sure that's why he resorted to using legal drugs to self medicate because he couldn't cope and he had no one to talk to. Every once in a while he'd call me, but once I had my first son, he also felt that he didn't want to be a burden, you know, so usually I would call him. But to me, the, the stigma it is as bad as the disease itself, if not worse, because if stigma is what's preventing people from getting help. They're not even treating they're not even treating their mental illness. So in a way what we're saying is that stigma itself can be like lethal. Right. Most definitely. Most yeah. definitely. Yeah. Well,
0: so your brother, as far as you know, I mean other than his girlfriend and you, was there anyone else he could tell about it? Not that I know of. So it's very lonely. Right. Right. Mm. Yeah. And even you who it's what's so remarkable is how unjudgmental you were right from the beginning. He didn't feel like it was really
1: safe to tell you he wasn't taking his medicine anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. And there were, I mean, there were some things he shared with my mother and I was like, why do not you tell me that? But I think he was worried that I would say something to somebody else about it.
0: Well, he knew also, he knew about psychology. Maybe you would like try to talk him out of it or get him to change his mind. Right. So tell me more about what you understand about what might his reluctance have been about taking meds? Because I know the lack of creativity was one big thing. Right. Um, but I know that taking medicine is actually really complicated for a lot of other
1: reasons, too, and I wondered if you could say something about that. Well, from my brother's perspective, I mean, he relied on his creativity. That was, you know, that was his purpose in life. I mean, he was self-taught by ear, mm. you know, played all the time, and, you know, it. Uh, he wrote music and um, arranged music, so for him to lose that because he's taking medication. I I have empathy for that. I can completely understand that cuz I wouldn't want to give up something like that. You mentioned something to me about how like sometimes the goals of the treater
0: are really mm. at odds with the goal of the patient and I wonder if right. you could say something more about that.
1: Right. Well, so with my my brother's experience, I don't know, I mean, things have changed for the better, thankfully, since Ninety-five and ninety-six, you know, the mid to late nineties, when he was in treatment. Um, as far as you know, if you're on medication, most likely you're also in talk, you're in therapy. So when he went to his fifteen or twenty-minute appointments once a month, he was being asked questions like, what "Kind of side effects have you been having?" Not as the quality of your life decreased. I'm sure he was given like you know the mini depression forms. And I don't know how long he took his meds or how long he didn't take his meds either. My suspicion is that he took them for a short period of time. And then once he started feeling the effects, he stopped taking them because he was in a band most, I mean, all the time. So... It's such a terrible bind, though, isn't it? Because what
0: we're basically saying is stigma stops people from getting help. And the idea is that we want to reduce stigma so people get help. And then, however, the help they get is often medication. I mean, sadly, you say, you know, you hope it's changed since the mid 90s. But currently, very few people with schizophrenia get talk therapy. You know, there's a Mm -hmm. whole attitude that, you know, they're not going to, they should just get biological treatment. And um, of course, people with schizophrenia are first people with all kinds of feelings about having schizophrenia, and they don't get listened to. And the focus is so much on these meds, which are genuinely very complicated to take. Mm -hmm. So people are kind of caught where we want them to get treatment, but the treatment is really quite painful to live with.
1: Right. Well, I think, and the thing is, every case is different. Right. You know, no, no case of schizophrenia is the same because, for example, John Nash doesn't right. take medication, and when sixty Minutes asked him what he does when he hears the voices, he says, "I convince myself they're not real." You know, he intellectualized right. his way out this of his the, disease. Right. Is the he mathematician? Was a, right. A mathematician yeah. at um, Princeton was it? Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like.
0: He managed to talk himself out using probabilities and sort of mathematical equations. Right, He was also a mathematical genius.
1: (laughs) So, but I mean, I think treatment should be highly individualized. And I think it's, you know, sometimes it's driven by what the, you know, what the new drug is on the market or, you know, um, the cheaper one because of health insurance.
0: One wishes for your brother that he'd had someone who'd really had the time to listen to him about his creativity and find a way to. Preserve it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I want to end. We're going to have to end in a few minutes. And I want to hear just a little bit more about Bring Change to Mind. I know that you can go onto the website, which is bring change to the number 2 mind, dot com, is it? Dot org. Dot org. And I know one of the things that they're doing is they have a pledge that they want people to sign on to. And I wonder if you could tell me more about the pledge.
1: Right. Um, So on the Bring Change to Mind website, there is a pledge where you basically pledge to end the stigma and discrimination of mental illness by not not promoting shame, having individual conversations about either a family member's experience or your own personal experience. Because I think one of the things that creates all the shame and stigma is that we're so unlikely to talk about it. You know, And I think the more we talk about it, the easier it'll get to talk about it. It's like cancer, and people used to call it the C word. And same with mental illness it 's just a matter of time, and people say well it 's because we label everything, but biological illnesses are the same way, and actually mental illness is biological illness, so it's brain disease to have those you know sharing sharing those stories, and I think you know in my case, sometimes i'm reluctant to share because it's not such a positive story, but I would not be doing what i 'm doing now head." my brother not had that impact on my life Um, you know so you know basically my goal is that he continues to touch people because of what I'm doing so
0: I feel the really the beauty of your deep intention of kind of honoring his legacy yes I think he would be he would feel so honored if he knew yeah sadly he doesn't get to tell you that
1: no but he used to tell me how proud he was of me all the time did he Ah, that's great
0: to hear that. So if people in here, in Maine, want to get involved with Bring Change to Mind, what do they do? Do they go to the website and sort of sign up or...
1: Yep. Um, I would suggest going to the website first. um, And then on the website, we have links to our Facebook page and to the Twitter account and to the PSA, which is on YouTube. And so if they take the pledge... They can share it on. They can share it to Facebook or share it to Twitter. And I actually manage the Twitter account, so I respond to those tweets and tell people thank you for taking the pledge. So the best place to start is our website. Um, we actually have a link that's just resources, how to get in contact with local NAMI offices, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and they've you know we use them as a resource because they know local referral sources. That's wonderful. So, and there's um, facts and myths and research article links. So it's a really good starting place if yeah. um, you're concerned about a family member or, you know, haven't reached out yet.
0: So Alicia, what was Josh's last name? Barnes. Also Barnes. So yeah. we're going to have to stop, but I just want to say his name. This uh, show is really in honor of Josh Barnes and also you, Alicia, and your work to honor his memory. Thank you so much for being my guest.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Leonard for the music. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or email a link to a friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. You can sign up there to get a weekly email with the link to each week's show if you'd like. You can also download us from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is The Watchdog.